Hi everyone, just to let you know, we've got a very special guest on our show today. It is one of Britain's top nerds. Oh, is it me? It's even more top than you, James Harkin. You're not even supposed to be doing this bit. Oh yeah, sorry. No, no, look, you're very welcome. Um, It is Bobby Seagull. He's not only a maths teacher, you might know him from University Challenge, where he came to prominence. He's a TV presenter. He's written a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers, which will change your life. You should definitely get it. And he's also written the Monkman and Seagull quiz book. He's a brilliant guy, full of interesting nerdy facts. He now co-hosts the Maths Appeal podcast, but today he's on ours. Yes, and I'm not on ours. So I'm not even sure why I'm here to be... Oh, I know I am here. I'm here to remind you that we are going on tour in the autumn and in the last day of summer, if this is how you count your seasons. Basically, the 31st of August, we're going to be in Inverness. Then we're going to be in Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Glasgow and Cardiff. If you're in any of those places, come and watch our show. It's going to be so much fun. Loads of facts, loads of silliness. We just can't wait to be back on tour again. That's right. And even if you don't think that the 1st of September is the first day of autumn, which I don't happen to, if you disagree with James's delineation of the seasons, just come anyway. Uh, that's right. It's from the 31st of August to the 13th of September. Go to nosuchthingasafish.com slash live. Get your tickets now. On with the show. On with the podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and our very special guest, it's Bobby Seagull. And once again, we have gathered around the microphone with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Bobby. My fact this week is that the UK pop charts were originally compiled by phoning around 20 record shops and asking what their best-selling songs were that particular week. <laughs> so we're talking 50s, are we? This was November 52, yeah, first November 52. charts? So the Queen's um, Jubilee year, yeah. 52. So that means for the first few months of her reign, there was a different way of assessing the music charts as it were. So in the US, they had the billboards. So for the billboards, it was a, I think since the 1940s, it was like weekly sales. But in the UK, they didn't have a chart based on music sales. So it was an organisation called the PRS, the Performing Rights Society, and they would look at the best-selling sheet music. Mm. The word sheet always annoys me. (laughs) (laughs) In in school, if I say the word sheet, she's like, sir, is that what? Do you have two sheets on you, sir? (laughs) I'm being very juvenile, sorry. We've we've got the sense of humour of your students. Bobby's a teacher, by the way, yeah, we should say. (laughs) So it it was the the sheet music. So a man called Percy Dickens. Uh-huh. So hail Percy Dickens. Mm-hmm. So he was a magazine advertising salesman. And he was actually a founding member of um, the new Musical Express oh. magazine, which is now Enemy. Although mm. it's Enemy shut nowadays. It's still online. It still online, functions okay. online. So RIP print copy. But yeah. yeah. Hail to the <laughs> it digital. lives on. Hail to the digital <laughs> copies. So he thought, actually, what's the best way of getting advertising revenue for a magazine? And he said, actually, we can attract commercial advertising revenue if we tie up something with the record industry. So then he thought, oh, actually, how about we do some sort of 
record-based music chart. And that's how the initial brainwave spark for this Okay, so records were sort of like an obscure, you know, why are you buying a record? You could just buy the sheet music and your own yeah, yeah, piano. You could, and you sing it on yourself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then they decided calling around 20 shops would be the reli- most reliable way to do that. Yes, so but what, his system was like, like that. But So what the management of NME decided was, they, I think they agreed with 50 shops um, that they would be willing to exchange data. Mm. So, but with those 50-ish shops, I think it's 53, but it's 50-ish, it's always safer. Mm. As a mathematician, you, know, you don't like giving exact numbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so every Monday morning, Percy Dickens would pick up the dog and bone phone uh, and call up about 15 to 25 shops, on average 20 shops. And each store would give their top 10. But this is where things get a bit murky because he would then have a points-based system they'd allocate to this. And this is a bit, we don't know, it's like a Eurovision-type system. We don't know the exact mm. system. But because of that, it meant that his first ever top, I think he was trying to do like a top 12, but there were 15 entries because three entries, number seven, eight, and 11 tied. And we all know in reality, mm. it's unlikely that three songs would have exactly the same wow. yeah. number of sales. What were the just, chances? But because he went to 20 shops. Yeah. yeah, just yeah. You're gonna probably have like two songs with 17 sales each. Yeah. And then how are they? Because mon- I sort of read that they're not that great at monitoring anyway, are they? The shops, and also they'll they might just say the song that they like best. Well, if they were told we're going to be ringing you up and asking for your sales, they probably <laughs> would keep the sales. Yeah, maybe they'd count. But I like that. I would just I do find myself wondering if anyone ever tried to game the system by picking a particular shop and saying, well, I'm going to send 15 different friends in here all to buy this one single well, and that, hope they get phoned up this week by Percy Dickens. That did used to happen, though. I don't know if specifically to uh, do to British charts, but yeah. certainly overseas in America, you you would have, you know, the really rich people just buying huge units of, of an album from one specific store just to get those numbers up to get them into the charts. Oh. There was That was a thing to get in the charts. I mean, that's happened forever, yeah, you know. Um, yeah. Taylor Swift's doing a gig and she's bundled it with the new album or she's released a new t-shirt and she bundles it with the album and so you cheat the sale because you're attaching it. Does it count as a sale? It used to and not anymore um, because they noticed that bands were just you know cheating the system they were gaming the system and so um, are they actually not popular at all ed sheeran taylor swift does it turn out <laughs> oh, no. no no one even no likes them. All my spotify no, top 10 is all false <laughs> <laughs> exactly well no but may 2020 dua lipa she had future nostalgia which was the lowest selling number one album ever Imagine getting to number one and finding out you were the worst asset. That's, That's an awkward record oh. to yeah. have. Why did they yeah. tell her that? That's mean. Yeah, seven thousand three hundred seventeen <laughs> copies. Wow. In, uh, that was the that was the sixth week that she was at number one. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah but, it's got to be some tailing off. Yeah, yeah. But what, what's that was intru- still number one in that week? Uh, yes, it was still That's number crazy. one in that week. Yeah. yeah. And so what's amazing about this is that it's basically since streaming music has come along that mm. the charts have been altered in such a weird way. So a thousand album streams equates to one record sale is what they say. Uh, one physical product. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, that's, that's how in the you, UK, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. in the UK. That's how that's how you do that. But also, what they found is so interesting. Such an interesting time where gigantic musicians who are global names are fighting it in the charts with bands that are independent local British ones with a big fan base mm. who can get them to that number. So they're in the charts, but because everyone's streaming the biggies they're not buying the album. But then the little ones, they've got such hardcore fans who might buy five or six copies to give to their friends and family. They're making a dent in the charts. Oh, I see. So you mean the bands that only only their friends and family are buying it, they buy physical albums, but because that's so rare to do. And they count, I think they count more in the, in the equation as well. So I think for singles charts, like 100 paid streams is one sale mm-hmm. and 600 free streams. So the freemium versions is one sale. <laughs> yeah, so if you okay. pay for your 
Spotify, iTunes, and you're streaming it, it's six times more valuable than someone on a ad based. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, How that's good because I, if I find a song I like, I will often listen to it 600 times. If you buy it once, it's the same. Oh, the, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to subject yourself to the 600 <laughs> listens, and you can I, just buy it I don't and then want never to, listen no, again. I, I, I want to A, save the money, and B, I do really like the songs I like. So I tend to, <laughs> um, just back to Percy Dickens yeah. and the, the first list in 52. Yep. I was reading about the first ever number one single mm. which was called Here in My Heart and it was by Al Martino do you guys read about him? no yeah. he was crazy so I, I'd never heard of Al Martino before he was an Italian American singer and former bricklayer and um, he went on to great fame because he was in The Godfather mm. playing a singer called Johnny Fontaine oh yeah and really? Johnny Fontaine is the one who leads to someone getting a, a horse's head in the bed yes yes that's oh, right confession I've not watched The Godfather well I was told off at a party a recently about this <laughs> <laughs> I do know the fact but I was not I, uh, I've not okay. seen The Godfather um, well it's a very <laughs> worth watching it's, not, it's, a, it's only average yeah, <laughs> it's no grown ups with Adam Sandler <laughs> <laughs> but then this, okay this is the really weird thing about Al Martino so he was he, he played a singer connected to the mafia in mm. the film The Godfather yeah but then eventually he was forced to leave the UK by the mafia because uh, they tried to buy him out of his American management contract and there was some controversy and there was oh. some disagreement and then so really yeah yeah so oh, was yeah. He, he was involved in um mafia-ish circles it sounds like a bit it sounds like you may have met them sometimes i don't, I don't want to filming maybe i don't know method acting good oh my <laughs> god to, i, love I went that. two methods <laughs> um, um, do, on, on percy dickens yeah so do you know his second claim to fame so obviously the charts is his first claim to fame but the second one is so do you know we have modern sort of like award ceremonies and stadium rock concerts so he actually in the early 60s he pioneered the something called the enemy poll winners concert and he managed to get, I think, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And again, this is like a tenuous claim to fame, but some people in the music industry say that was responsible for the sort of award ceremonies we have nowadays. So he was the first person oh, in the UK yeah. to say, oh, let's have a big, all the winners of the awards, music awards, let's get them all together in a big concert at Wembley. So I think it was Wembley Arena, which is the Empire Pool at the time. So that's mm-hmm. his second. His fault. Right. We have these awards ceremonies. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Wow. What, a, what a big character. So he's from my, I didn't realise, he's from my hometown of East Ham. Okay. So I'm from East Ham from the London Borough of Newham, which is why I'm a massive mm. West Ham fan. But I never knew he was from East Ham. And I was trying to find out where in East Ham, and I can't, but if there's people, listeners out there, we need to get a blue plaque for this man in East Ham. Mm, because he founded the chart yeah. and possibly pioneered the music award ceremony. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I agree. Love that. Um, I was reading about, did you guys happen to read about the first ever Top 100 Billboard single? No. So this was in 1958, and it was a song that was called Poor Little Fool by Ricky Nelson. And yeah, so it came out, it was a massive hit, and it was actually written by a woman called Sharon Sheely. And she wrote the song because she'd met Elvis Presley when she was 15, and he basically encouraged her to get into writing. So she thought, okay, I'll do that. She based it, the song, on a very short um, fling that she had with a guy called Don Everly of the Everly Brothers. Um, So the song that's the first number one is actually based on a musician, which is quite cool in its own right. Um, 
And effectively, she might have dabbled with some other songs, but from what I read, this was the first song that she wrote. And so cool. she, she thought, I need to get someone to record it. So she thought Ricky Nelson could be perfect for this. So she drove to his house and she faked breaking down outside of it, the car, not emotionally. emotionally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so she broke down, her car supposedly was broken down, and she was like, please, can you help me? And he was like, yeah, okay. And he came out and he tried to help her with the car. And then she went, I've got a song. you got to hear it. I want you to sing it. And he heard it and he went, okay, I'll do it. And that's the first number one. Her first song right. at 18, handing it, by wow. faking a breakdown. Yeah. Did he fix her car that wasn't broken? <laughs> yeah. What happened yeah. there? It fooled him because he didn't know he could do that. He subsequently left the music industry and became a mechanic. Oh, nice. because, the worst yeah. mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is someone uh, who collected every single track that entered the top 40 from 1952 onwards. A guy called Keith Sivier. And he died in 2015, so the collecting stopped then. Oh. But he bought every single track, every one that entered the top 40. Wow. How yeah. many is that? Do you know? Well, his lounge alone contained 35,000 vinyls. Mm. He had uh, and 10,000 CD singles as well. Nice. Um, I mean, it was a lot. We think that's cool, but for his kids, every time they went home, you'd have that conversation with your dad. Like, Dad, <laughs> well, have you thought about <laughs> clearing these out? He, I mean, he lived in a normal house in Twickenham. It yeah. was not a big place, wow. but it was entirely full of stacked uh, records. Just insane. Wow. If I, was his, if I was his kids or children or uh, nephews and nieces, I'd feel like a responsibility to continue that from 2015. You can't just, you can't just like, <laughs> from 52 to 2015, you can't just leave it like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. Right. family tradition. Family. Exactly. I, I don't think any, I read a piece about it and I don't think anyone oh. in his family was saying, oh Maybe yeah, we'll keep going. In. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you can be the foster <laughs> child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, can I just tell you something fun about sheet music charts? Yeah. Uh, what, what type of music? Sheet music. Sheet music. <laughs> how many sheets? This music is sheet. So, Bobby, you mentioned earlier about sheet music being how the charts were compiled before the 50s. And um, so, yeah, that was how people took in music, basically. They went and bought sheet music, and then I guess they'd have to play it at mm. home or look at it and imagine it being played. And so sheet music publishing and promotion was a huge industry. And you got people who were hired as um, song pluggers who would be like demonstrators who would sit in shops that were selling sheet music and they'd have to play the music. So Love someone that. would say, cool. I want to buy this by so-and-so. And then people, so, so certain people got their starts in life doing that. Lil Hardin, who was Louis Armstrong's wife, uh, started as a song plugger. Irving Berlin, George Gershwin started wow. as song pluggers. Oh. Did they slip their own songs in? <laughs> is that how they got big? <laughs> this is a cracking hit. <laughs> yeah. People come up to you in the shop. Mm -hmm. and do they say, I want to buy a song that goes like this? Ba -da, ba -da, ba, and then they play it? No. They, they could do that. I guess you'd adapt to your customer. So if you came in and, you know, sang the, <laughs> I don't know. That. That. Yeah. They'd, <laughs> say, ba -da, ba -da, ba, they'd say, oh, well, you might like this song. I think, yeah, exactly. Like a Spotify algorithm. Well, no, they're, they're more just, <laughs> they're, they're radio. They're just a back, they're a live radio. They're just playing the hits, presumably, from the oh, week. Oh, and people say, oh, I like that Yeah, one. what's, what's that, that song you're playing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh. They're like a jukebox. Like a shazam type of. Yes. Yeah. The, the original Shazam. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but they did, it wasn't just playing. They'd also be paid by the song publishers to do things like they'd go into theatres and in the intervals, they'd be paid to start singing a tune uh, oh, really loudly. Wow. And you'd have to get the whole audience to <laughs> sing along with you. Cool. <laughs> Which you have to be quite confident to do that because yeah. <laughs> you risk looking like a psychopath. But yeah, and then people are like, God, I heard that tune at the theatre in the interval recently. I'm going to buy it. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. What a clever way. I mean, we, we should do that. We should go in the intervals at theatre and go, my fact this week. <laughs> 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 
Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that there are two members of the National Trust's food and beverage team who both have the surname Kit Kat. <laughs> so i gotta tell you how i got this fact i was at an event recently and someone came up it was a podcast event and someone came up saying hey i really like your podcast um and i said oh thanks um and we had a bit of a chat uh turns out he worked for the national trust and then i went off and then about an hour later then you I- went off he said i work for the national trust and you just turned around and walked yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> i actually slapped him before i went as well yeah um and then so i had to go to an event and then i finished and as I came out, uh, he clocked me from across the room and, and he kind of ran towards me and said, I forgot to tell you my favorite fact. And this was the fact. So <laughs> his name is Jack Glover. Um, he, he's a podcast producer for the National Trust. Oh, they have their own podcast. Yeah. And yeah, and he was saying that basically it's he doesn't know either of these Kit Kats. But uh, someone mentioned that there was a Kit Kat who worked for the National Trust. <laughs> and as they were Googling it, they found not Another. one another Kit Kat so they're related they're not related because they're spelt oh, differently yeah. so That's Louise <laughs> yeah Louisa Kit Kat who spells it K-I-T-C-A-double-T and then you've got mm. uh, Sam Kit Kat who's just got one T we don't know if they know each other I've tried to find them online they're on LinkedIn I didn't have time to get through to them uh, I think Louise is on Instagram but it's a private account so I couldn't oh. get through to her some weirdo trying to contact them all week I've just never heard the surname Kit Kat before no me neither I've yeah. never heard of that um, well, it's a brilliant fact. It's yeah. amazing. Food it's and beverage. Love it. Mm. Should we say what... I don't know if overseas every country has its own national trust in the same kind of way, but in Britain, there's basically an organization. They're an independent charity, and they buy up places of national importance, and they make it public. So they make places that might otherwise have been private, like mm. Winston Churchill's old house, Chartwell, that, mm. that, was, uh, that was bought by them, and it was transformed into a public place. And so it means that the public can go and visit all of these extraordinary places. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, the National Trust has some amazingly weird stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah. Mm. oh my goodness so i was just reading about like the odd things they have did you know they've got uh the national rhubarb collection Ooh. cool they've... is that just lots of people muttering away in the background yeah yeah um they've got the largest fern in the uk at colby woodland garden it's 400 years old 19 feet around wow Impressive. big fern wow. big fern big yeah. fern and they've got one nudist beach which oh. I've been to, actually. Oh. Have you? Oh. Yeah. Studland. I may have mentioned that before. It was oh. in Dorset. Studland. Yeah. Studland. <laughs> I went down there with my friends um, and we didn't know it was a nudist beach. Did you yeah, get naked? Yeah. No, we didn't. I, well, I didn't. I don't know if they did. But no, we didn't. <laughs> but we you didn't. happened to be naked at the time. <laughs> Fortunately, I was able to seamlessly blend in. No, um, yeah, there were the, it was because it's quite sand duny. So it's quite, mm. the landscape is quite undulating. So it's not immediately apparent that it's a nudist beach. <laughs> but every so often, someone will just hove into view who is naked. <laughs> and you sort of pop up like a little meerkat. And you think, oh, that's funny. And then pop back down. Anyway, yeah. Oh. Do you think the undulations are a nod to the human form? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, because this actually does link to another National Trust property. Oh, really? West Wickham Park, uh, West Wickham Park Gardens were designed in the shape of a woman's anatomy. Oh. Uh, apparently. Which or- anatomy? Like the whole thing? I think the whole thing. <laughs> the nose, the eye. It's just the ear, the left earlobe. Um, no, it's mostly centred on a mound of Venus, which has a oh. passageway underneath oh, it. Oh, blimey. Um, so I think that's... 
a vagina. Um, but this is so cool. This was the home of Sir Francis Dashwood, who was who founded something called the Hellfire Club. Oh yeah, Ooh. which is the. I mean, it's an awful club. It's basically a worse version of the Bullingdon Club, but also really fun. Which is basically around the Hellfire Club, or I th- oh maybe it is. Sounds it's a club for posh people to oh. meet up and do really sordid stuff. So it probably is still around. <laughs> um, but yeah, he designed um, this house and gardens, and then this hillside nearby, yeah. which you can also visit, which is National Trust, and it's full of tunnels and caves that were covered in like phalluses and priapic statues, and they'd like act out religious rituals there, but in a porny way. And so (laughs) they'd have nuns, but they'd be sex workers and uh, they'd be asked to lie down. And then the members of the club would lick holy wine from their navels and stuff like that. Um, But lots of people got involved in it. Ben Franklin paid a visit. Ben did a bit of navel licking, I'm afraid. Ben? Wow, the, 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 the <laughs> Ben, first name terms. Yeah. Wow. Not even first name ben. terms, Sh- abbreviated first Abbreviated, name that's yeah, what yeah. got me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Benny F. Benny F, yeah, well in the club we refer to each other. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, after he died, Francis Dashwood, then his heirs called in Capability Brown, the famous garden designer, to remove quite a lot of the more sordid elements of the garden. Wow. Right. You can still visit. Do you know what the membership, anyone know the membership price for National Trust for a single person? Oh, I don't. I have been a member, so but actually, you know, like Benjamin. How much is that in the in the states? Benjamin, is that a, is that a hundred dollar bill? I think it is. Uh, yes, it is. We call it a Ben, but a yeah. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, I think maybe based on try, it might actually be the the price of a Ben. I think it's about seventy six pounds eighty, which might be a Ben. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, it's close. Yeah, that's a Franklin. Yeah, does that get you into all of them for yes, free? Yes, seventy six pounds eighty. That's gone year. up a lot. Inflation, yeah, cost of living crisis. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> People uh, can't even afford to visit stately homes anymore. I've had to buy yeah. cheap wine to lick out of the sex worker's navel. <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking at the National Trust website, and they very proudly declare we have five point three seven million members, which is more than Costa Rica. Are they, are they proud yes. like an invasion? Like, we shall arm, get your shovels and picks and your membership cards. We shall go to Costa Rica. So <laughs> They're quite proud of it. Is, I mean, that is huge. That is really that, huge. That's in their website. But I didn't see further digging. Actually, it's apparently 5.9 million rather than 5.37. Wow. So their website's out of date. So in mm. theory, they could be more ambitious. Forget Costa Rica, Denmark or Singapore. Wow. They could invade them. National Trust. Which would you go for? Denmark, I think, probably has more historic features that they easier to get to from Britain as well. You get like the Vikings. Yeah, take 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 back take back. Yeah, Denmark. Let's stick with Denmark. Yeah, Um, yeah. I I love. There's one place uh, that Jack was telling me about who sent me this fact called Orford Ness, and it's a nature reserve, and they have lots of amazing animals there. They have the white-faced woodland sheep, uh, but they've also got a nuclear bomb. Yeah. Okay. So is that why the sheep look so pale? (laughs) (laughs) It's still there. So basically, um, Britain detonated an atomic bomb, didn't they, in the 50s, 1952? Yeah, there were a few tests and things. Yeah, exactly. We had some tests, and the pre-test was done at this place, Orford Ness. Mm. And the reason that it was done there is what they did was they built these big kind of uh, buildings that would go into the ground and the bombs were effectively being tested for their stress levels. So what they did was they put them in the buildings and then they just shake them and just kept shaking them. Just shake, 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 shake. And the idea was if you were transporting a nuclear bomb by plane, they wanted to make sure that it didn't detonate as it was being flown to the place, yeah. right. purely because of the stress levels that it would have. So this is where they did it, and they still have one of the bombs 
sitting there, it's deactivated. Okay, obviously. I was going to say, they always use deactivate. I mean, yeah, they didn't test it with, a, with an armed bomb anyway, but uh, it's sitting there next That's to the sheep. I'm going to Orford Ness in a couple of weeks. Get out. Oh. Go, Go see the bomb. the bomb. I will. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Um, yeah, the founding story of the National Trust is, um, it's got a lot of great characters at its beginning, mm, hasn't it? So yeah. um, there were sort of three founders. Uh, it was a lawyer, a clergyman, and a social reformer. Sounds like Octavian. a start of a joke, doesn't it? A lawyer, a priest, and a social reformer walks <laughs> into... <laughs> <laughs> what happens? They make a socially responsible organisation. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's this woman called Octavia Hill, who was yeah. the eighth daughter of... Uh, her father which Seriously. I always like if you're called Octavia or oh. Tertius or whatever mm. be the eighth oh. mm. yes um, and so maybe that's why he had eight daughters yeah. so he could call on Octavia <laughs> and she was amazing she um, her parents had sort of set up a school for the poor and stuff and would do good as anyway so she had good examples set for her but um, then her dad went bankrupt and left the family in the 19th century <laughs> maybe because he had eight children <laughs> yeah yeah it does <laughs> I read a story where age 14 she was left home alone her family gone to church oh, oh I know the story isn't it and two burglars <laughs> oh yeah um, the iron on the face yes um, yes. <laughs> she mutilated them horribly yes but they yeah. came back they came back <laughs> now you've said that I think this might have been the home alone origin story yeah 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 because it was it was one burglar oh you, seriously yeah yeah one burglar came in uh, came out fell out of a cupboard actually she was on the third floor of their house he <laughs> fell out of a cupboard where he'd been hiding and apparently she said, how did you get in here? And he said, I walked up the stairs. And she just said, then will you please to walk down them again? <laughs> and then she led him down the stairs and out of the house. Wow. Yes. So that's much shorter. Did, did, need a, did need a punch up, didn't it, for the, uh, for the Macaulay Culkin version? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what a, compl- what a compliant burglar. Like how responsible. Yeah. yeah. It's like ethical burgling. Ethical burgling yeah. is like if you ask me nicely. I won't do it. Yeah. And didn't she, I think I'm right in saying that she later went to New York and she got lost, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, she boarded yeah. the wrong plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. um, it's, yeah, Octavia Hill, amazing. Um, yeah. Mm, I, but I, I kind of got sidetracked reading about uh, the clergyman of the three founders, mm-hmm. Canon right. Hardwick Drummond Rawnsley. Such an mm-hmm. incredible formidable name. Yeah, it is formidable. Um, so he was a he was a bishop from Lincolnshire. He was described as uh, the most active volcano in Europe by one of his parishioners because he was so energetic, involved, always, Ooh. you know, coming up with new schemes and committees and plans and and, and and projects and papers and all of this. You know, mm-hmm. constantly writing and thinking and meeting. But his main interest, as far as I can tell, seems to be building bonfires. Like he had this huge <laughs> passion about bonfires. So there was a diamond jubilee for Queen Victoria in eighteen ninety seven. Mm-hmm. Yes, it would have been. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, and he was the head of something called the National Bonfire Committee. He basically spent his whole time suggesting huge bonfires at any opportunity, any national opportunity. So when the First World War ended, 1919, they had huge bonfires everywhere. Mm-hmm. Coronation in 1911, huge bonfires. Um, so how many National Trust properties did he burn down in the course of trying <laughs> well, to It's just amazing. Like, there are these huge towers of wood. Like, the coronation ones in 1911 are so impressively massive. Uh, and he organised 2,200 of them across the entire country. Wow. Like, it, was, it, was a mega, it was a mega theme of his life. Really? Yeah. Should we should have, like, a bonfire czar, national bonfire czar. Oh, that's such a good idea. <laughs> that's an awesome idea. Because we just had the Jubilee and there I, were exactly, lots of beacons. 
but they were they were tiny compared yeah. with these things. I mean, I don't know. We're making cuts to the civil service. I'm not yeah. sure we've got where the bonfires are in Boris's vision. Um, just back to Octavia for one oh, second, yeah, yeah. because I think it's worth mentioning. There's quite a lot of descriptions about her character and mm. and who she was by her friends, and I find them such like bizarre representations. So she had a friend called Henrietta Barnett, and Henrietta described her saying she was small in stature with a long body and short legs. She did not dress, she only wore clothes, which were often unnecessarily unbecoming. Her <laughs> mouth was large and mobile, but not improved by laughter. Oh, <laughs> really oh quite cutting stuff. It's and one of her friends writing this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I, I see, yeah, it was her friend. Gertrude Bell had a comment about oh, her saying she was yeah. despotic. So not, not a great review. And um, the Bishop of London, who was called Frederick Temple, um, he had a meeting with her. And afterwards he wrote, she spoke for half an hour. I never had such a beating in my life. Really? Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like she was really, you know, sort of confident. She and was she, formidable, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But then I was reading just, a lot just of... Just quick nominative determinism. Sorry, Bishop called Frederick Temple. Yes. That's yes. Nice. Good pause. Good Thank pause you. for that. Octavia just... Hill as well. Hill National oh, Trust. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. the first thing that was donated to the National Trust was a hillside. Really? Yeah. Uh, by something, someone called Fanny Tolbert. Um, you know that one of the, the the lawyer that was one of the trio mm -hmm. was Robert Hunter. Oh, yeah. He's a lawyer. R lawyers are like hunters. They like find. Their... You stretch it too far, Bobby. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one, two. It's okay. You're new to the show. It's fine. You know, you'll find your feet. You've lost everyone. <laughs> um, Beatrix Potter too. I'm sure you guys came across this. Yeah. Mm. Be what did you just figure? say? Beatrix Potter. Well, what's her? I'm sure you guys came across. Beatrix. Are you pronouncing her name in a really odd way? Beatrix oh, God, Potter. Oh, God, I've said it all my life is, is Beat Beatrix. Beatrix Potter. I say Beatrix Potter. Beatrix. Yeah, it's Beatrix. Uh, what did you say? Beatrix. Oh, like, like beetroot. Yeah, yeah, I guess. People oh, are going to have an absolute no. field day with that. <laughs> yeah, well, get over it, guys. I say Beatrix. Um, Sorry, come on. <laughs> Christ. She donated so much to the National Trust. She made yeah. 4,000 acres. After the success yeah. of Jemima Puddleduck and Mr. Jeremy Fisher and all of that, she just devoted her time to breeding sheep. Sorry, Puddle Duck? Yeah, oh, God, how, do I, how are you meant to pronounce well, it? Well, no, it's just another... Jemima you know. Puddle Duck, yeah? Do you not know Jemima Puddle Duck? No. Right. Oh, that's a character. <laughs> that's a character the within the... 19th century reformer. <laughs> <laughs> His reforms particularly. Founder of the National Trust, I thought we were she, saying. She advocated, I think, for free bread for everybody. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> near, near, near like watering holes yeah, yeah, yeah. oh come yeah. on who gives a duck a surname that's, <laughs> that's unfair oh my god <laughs> okay it is time for fact number three and that is Andy my fact is that the French speaking clock was created by an astronomer who was annoyed that members of the public kept phoning his office to ask for the time. <laughs> <laughs> which would be annoying. It was. Um, yeah. um, so this was uh, this is from an article in The Times, which was about the fact that the French speaking clock, l'horloge parlante, is winding Ooh. down and, and winding up and closing down. And <laughs> <laughs> clock related things. Yeah. Um, it's the oldest speaking clock in the world, I think, uh, or it was the f it was the first one founded, really? and uh, it was pioneered by a man called Ernest Esclangon in 1933, who was a French astronomer, and I think was at the, the sort of official, you know, the, the government. Uh, he was the director of the Paris Observatory. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, and 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 people kept ringing up to ask the time because that was one of the ways before speaking clocks exist. You verify the absolute nailed on time. Uh, was you found an astronomer, <laughs> and his phone line was constantly busy with people phoning. 
growing up in his office staff were always being distracted by people saying, yeah, it's 10.33 yeah. and a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, so uh, that was the uh, inspiration. I love the idea that maybe he spotted an oncoming comet, you know, crashing into Earth and he just wasn't able to notify <laughs> anyone. <laughs> Did he have then a reliable clock sort of in front of him that he set or would he, how was he telling the time? I, I don't know. I think I think it would have been that's where the official timekeeping device for the country was kept. That's where it started. I think the Paris Observatory was where it was. Yeah, much yeah. like the way that Greenwich were the official stewards of you know official time. Because there was huge rivalry time wise between Britain and France. It's the main beef between us almost <laughs> to this day. <laughs> I was it wasn't there. It was like where's where's official time gonna rest? And it ended up being Greenwich for the world. Um, but I think oh, Paris yeah. Observatory was the other big contender. I think they, de- right. they defined uh, Greenwich time as Paris time minus two and a half minutes or whatever number of minutes oh, it really? was. And they did it so until about the 1990s. Like they, they really, really dug their heels in on, on <laughs> Greenwich time. Yeah. So this, this clock, the first speaking clock in France, yeah. uh, it was the 14th of February, 1933, when it debuted. And on its very oh, first day. Oh, oh romantic. That's true. Yeah, that's lovely. So 143 thousand people <laughs> called up or rather recalled up trying to hear it because they could only get 20,000 answers during the course of the day because they had 20 lines that were doing it so that might have been one person just recalling just desperate to hear it but uh <laughs> yeah incredible. very wow. very lonely people on valentine's day that year <laughs> when you were children did you ever call up the one two three number in the uk we've got like a one yeah. two three number yeah i, I did, used to annoy yeah. my parents i used to call them up on the number and you'd hear like at the third stroke the time would be and then 10 seconds later i'd call again and then my parents get like an enormous bill like it was so expensive <laughs> so expensive but in the uk i think is, is the bt speaking clock and at some stage they called it i think they called it timeline well, they call it Tim for short, because yeah. if you for the major cities, if you're trying to get uh, the time, you dial 846, which T-I-M uh, yeah. would be on that. Oh, so good. Although, I, although, ironically, even though the name was Tim, the first two clock speakers in Britain for the first 50 years were female. Um, uh, uh, Ethel Jane Kane and Miss Pat Simmons. But the first one, there was an incredible competition to select them. So there was a pool of 15,000 telephone operators who worked for the General Post Office and they organised a nationwide competition to find the golden voice. And a bit like (laughs) X Factor or Britain's Got Talent, they got like the judges. We got the poet laureate John Macefield. We got the actress Dame Sybil Thorndike. We got the chief BBC announcer Stuart Hibbert. Yay! For this week's edition of the speaking clock. <laughs> Who will win this week? So awesome. Proper competition. It was so eminent, the panel. Yeah. Poet laureate. Well, and Sybil the... Thorndike, who's a famous name even who's today. Who's that? I yeah. actually don't Just know Just an Sybil. incredibly oh, famous actress true. from yeah. the time. Of, you know, great heroine of stage, basically. Right. So I think she was a bit pre-screen almost. Yeah. 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 But then you've got the, the crap one on the end. Is there Does one he... of those in X Factor, the one who's like the expert, but no one cares about them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, was, he, yeah. Someone called Mrs. Atkinson. And Lord Eiley were the uh, rounded out the uh, the committee in uh. 1936. But they, so they they always have a kind of fancy panel of judges, which I love. So I think we're only on the fifth voice of the speaking clock now, yes. the official speaking clock. Mm. Um, they always have a fancy panel who choose, and I think the panel these days always includes the previous speaking clock voice. If you see what I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah that makes they sense. They sign up to so um, it was a guy called Brian Cobby who was on the committee in 2006 when they were picking the new voice, but he had been the voice for the previous 20 years. Wow. So they had him, uh, the current voice, Natasha Kaplinsky, 
Oh, oh yeah. Newsreader. Newsreader. And, and, and Strictly really nice Come Dancing. Yeah, did she win the first, or was she in the first season? She was in the first Ooh, season, point. I don't know if she, this was pre or post her Strictly Triumph. So she knows how to read stuff. Exactly. I guess she knows what a good voice sounds like. I know, and the other voices, the other members of the panel included uh, the guy who voiced the National Lottery. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Forty-seven. Ma- yeah, exactly. Yeah, who can read <laughs> numbers? Exactly, reading numbers is basically that's the gig. My dream job. Who can read? <laughs> who can read numbers best? You're going to get the lottery guy, uh, and then a couple of others. But it wasn't the poet laureate. Mm. No. You know, you mentioned Brian Cobby because I found unsubstantiated claims that at one stage he may have been the person that did the voiceover to the Thunderbirds Five. <gasps> oh, yeah, I, I read that. But, it's un- yeah. but, but, but I think the Thunderbirds. The main creator says it wasn't him, but Brian oh. Cobby claims it was him. Oh, wow. Okay, controversy. What's I didn't happened find that... there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a quite a strange thing to claim if it wasn't you, isn't it? <laughs> like, well, you might, you might think it, like, you know, Brian Blessed claims that he was the voice of Tarzan's oh, oh, oh when um, Johnny Weissmuller couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, um, okay. But right. is that true? I don't know. <laughs> is it a Brian thing? Brian's just make up random shit about themselves. <laughs> Uh, when Cobby recorded his script, so he started in 1985. I really like this. So y- you don't have to do 24 hours, obviously. You just, <laughs> there's, a, there's a limited number of numbers that you have to record. Uh, and there are something like uh, 86 different prompts. But you have to you have to record, you know, for about an hour, I think. Oh, okay. Um, but the script that Cobby recorded was about 33 pages with various different things on it, you know, that you have to... But amazingly, they spent a while in the recording studio, they sent him home, and then they had to summon him back because they forgot to record the O'Clock. Oh, <laughs> no! Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you only need that once. Oh, okay. But then you have to... it is important. It is. It's right. important, yeah. You need it for the beats, because when it's on the hour, because usually it'll o'clock. be, you know, it's one... And 24 minutes. But oh, if yeah. It's, oh, you know, do they you say need... precisely at that? When it's like a round time? Yeah, exactly. Yes. They do. Yeah, yeah. It's two o'clock. Precisely. precisely. Yeah. Yes. Oh, precisely. That's precisely. what everyone loved about the first reader was her precisely. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, that was Ethel the famous. Yeah, the famous oh. word. The most, her most precisely. famous word. Can I ask, did they like it because it sounded quite sexy? Is that is that what you were trying Darren, to... get your brain out of the gutter. Just curious. Like, you know, sometimes people with sexy accents, you know... Can make any word sound sexy. I'm sure there were people on Valentine's <laughs> Day who did ring up, you know, <laughs> you know I don't know, cock in hand. I do like the use of the word that came from. I do like the use of the word sexy for time because time is based on base sixty. Oh. And sex six sex yeah, sexagesimal is the Oh, is that's so that is very sexy. Good. You need a sexy voice. Sexy time. Yeah, yeah. And that's the joke you were making, wasn't it? Exactly. <laughs> I knew that we had a mathematician in. I thought, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that. She, Ethel Kane, she had a speech impediment, which they didn't notice when they were recording it. She had a slight um, speech impediment. She whistled a bit at the end of each word. <laughs> and they... It's two o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's it... where the cuckoo clock comes from. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> yeah, but they didn't notice in the recording. So it must have been quite slight. And, and then they spent, they decided, because the clock ran on these beautiful glass discs mm. I, do, I have read about it I don't understand fully the mechanism they used but um, mm. they had to take the glass discs out of the machine and edit them and it took about a year to fix this oh, to get through the very whistle. minor wow. thing no way. yeah, yeah way. she can say the word precisely, precisely. is that the word precisely precisely yeah <laughs> down at the other Sexy end of the line <laughs> 
So in the 1970s, I think 1971, the UK experienced decimalization. So we lost the imperial system. Uh, with, yeah. Not lost, we had imperial with the decimals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1975... Not for much longer, though. Not for, oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I missed my ounces and uh, yeah. my miles and... <laughs> Farthings. Farthings. Hogs Penny heads. farthings. So in 1975, uh, in a Northern Ireland BBC programme called Scene Around Six, they had a newscast and it started off saying, it looks a lot more frightening than it actually is, but the government's preparing people for the phased introduction of the decimalisation of time. Um, you need to get dual standard timepieces. There'll be a 100 seconds to a minute, 100 minutes to the hour, 20 hours per day. But it was the 1st of April, 1975. Oh, oh so good. Those meanies, those meanies at the BBC. They yeah. said, it'll take 10 years for this to come through, so don't panic right now. Yes. Wow. I mean, that's do, brilliant. Do we know if people believed it? It was a BBC broadcast, see, the scene around six, so people would. God, I thought mean. the French government actually did something similar with the calendar, didn't they? Ooh, the French revolutionary yes. calendar had they 10 wanted months to. in it. Yeah. I yeah. think they might have even tried it. They did it in April 1st. No, it wasn't Ooh. the neighbor first thing. No, it's just uh, do this or you get your head chopped off thing. Um, Napoleon loved a joke. What if the French Revolution was just a neighbor fools that got badly yeah. out of hand? <laughs> Guys, hey, we were joking. What, what yeah. if there was no king? <laughs> um, I didn't say no king, I said joking. <laughs> oh, God. Um, the people who do the speaking clock, just quickly on that. Sorry, yeah. back to uh, my obsession, Brian Cobby, who I, I love. Bizarrely, two out of the five of them have been from Hove. Ooh. I don't. I'm not suggesting any conspiracy or anything like that, but I just find that quite weird. They always have loads of finalists, by the way. The last time they did it, there were 15 finalists, which is so many Oof. for the judges to listen mm-hmm. to. But when Brian Cobby got the job, the runner-up was a lady from Lowestoft, and she got the consolation prize. Can you guess what the consolation prize for this specific job would be? Oh, uh, doing the London Underground announcement? Not bad, very close. Oh, that's good. Oh, doing like a... Um a Sainsbury's announcement, you know, sort of aisle six. Not uh, yeah, needs very replenishing. Close, very close. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. She got this. You will all have heard this. The runner-up became the voice of the number you have called has not been recognised. No. Oh, yeah. Way. That is. Oh my god! And the most prize. the most terrifying words you can ever hear oh. as a child. Which was she the person who did the uh, when he did one four seven one as well? Oh, I don't know. I well, think you that... were called today at yeah. seventeen yeah. twenty-two. Oh, I think you might. It is a similar voice. I think it might be. Her. I think it might be because I oh. always found the most terrifying thing was really. I found <laughs> it quite sexy. What to have had? Oh God, Dan! Yeah. Did you have this in Australia you, when you did one four seven one? If someone called, you're alone in the house. You're yeah. twelve, um, and usually it'd be you were called today by this number, and then one in ten times it would go, you were called today at seventeen hundred hours. The caller withheld yeah. their number. Oh, yeah. 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 Why would they do That's such a terrifying. look in the cupboard on the third floor? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ethical burglars will be fine. <laughs> um, I was just generally looking into interesting clocks, not just speaking clocks. Okay. Um, can I give you a couple of interesting yep. normal clocks? I, are, they, are they sexy clocks to go with this new facet of Ooh, your personality? I'll let you be the judge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll let you be the judge. Um, no, I was, I was reading that... Um, Windsor Castle. So on the Queen's staff is an actual clockman who goes around every single day checking out all of the clocks within the Windsor estate, which is up to 400. There's 250 clocks within the castle itself. If he looks at his, you know, pedometer, he gets uh, 16,000 steps in every single day. Yeah, and the clocks there are absolutely amazing. So there's your normal clocks, um, but you've got historical clocks, right? So my favorite one is that there was a clock that was made by Charles Clay in 1740, 
and it plays melodies by the composer Handel. And mm. four of the songs that it plays were composed specifically by Handel for oh. this clock. <gasps> That's so they are so original cool. pieces. They worked in collaboration, and they think I think they made a few of these that went out to different royal families all through Europe. And it, you know, it's just an extraordinary thing that has oh. pipes underneath it and so on that plays out yeah, the super cool. the tunes. And they have all sorts of clocks like this that have historical uh, relevance within the the castle itself. Yeah. Can I tell you one more weird yeah, yeah, yeah. time? It's actually not a time thing. It's just a weird disembodied speaking voice thing, mm-hmm. which is an innovation in Tokyo. It's a, it's a toilet that has just been launched in Tokyo where you don't need to touch anything. Because it's like, How do you wipe your bum? What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you might need to touch one, one thing. You stand and sort of... Fully the pumps come... <laughs> Because there are lots of studies that show that when people use public toilets, they, they kind of avoid using their hands. They'll step on the loo lever, which is actually <laughs> a reason why you would need to step on the loo lever if the previous 50 people have all stepped on it. Because you know, Anyway, yeah. so you walk in and you just say, hi, toilet, and it kind of responds. So if you, it, it gives you a menu of actions. You can flush the toilet. Hello, or, you Andy. Know. <laughs> Back again. <laughs> the sexy, sexy toilet. thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you could say. I don't know if you could say, get my knob out. I don't think you can do that. But it's, yeah, you, so how's it work? So you say turn on the tap or flush the toilet. Yeah. So that's the hands-free element of the system. Okay. I think it may even be able to raise and lower the seat. I'm not sure. But you've still got to sit on the seat, which is, I would argue, largely the biggest bit of touching that <laughs> yeah. happens. In the... You can hover slightly above it. Can you? I don't have the thigh muscles to, to achieve <laughs> that, I'm afraid. <laughs> you lay the loo roll down on the, on the seat. I, I cover the whole thing. We can do both. You can lay it and hover. Oh, wow. wow. So you're like doubly protected. Double safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we have those anyway. We have toilets where, uh, which are so oh, irritating. Voice activated ones. No, no, but as in we have the non-touch version, which I hate, which is the ones where when you stand up, they flush off their own accord. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, sometimes you'll just stand up to turn around a bit to wipe your bum or whatever or to hang up your coat halfway through a wee and then it flushes itself. <laughs> Mid-wee. Mid-wee. I'm just going to hold this in, take my coat off, It's good hang practice. It it's like <laughs> clench those muscles. Where is this... A- Home, where are you hanging it? Are you going out the toilet to the, <laughs> to the, the hanger house, in the hall? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that Spain's gold reserves can only be accessed via drawbridge. It's <laughs> <laughs> very cool. And, <laughs> and they have a dragon as well, don't they? Yeah, uh, yeah they at do. At the other end of the drawbridge, a, yeah. a trumpeter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is most of Spain's gold, uh, which is in a Bank of Spain vault in Madrid. And it's very well protected, as a lot of gold reserves are. But it's, it's such a cool setup. So to get to the gold reserves, you have to penetrate three massive steel doors and they weigh like the first door weighs 16 tons which is about eight hippos worth um, and the and also they fit so well so when the door closes it fits so tightly that according to the bank even if like a tiny bit of fluff got in there it would sense it and would not be able to close it wow. would say you know you've got to get rid of that fluff Anyway, once you've got through these doors, then you go down a 35-metre elevator shaft underground and you're let out. I think you walk through a tunnel and then you've got to cross a drawbridge. So a drawbridge has to be let down over a (laughs) moat 
it's not a moat it's just a ditch um and i think it's about three or four meters drop yeah um okay but i struggled to find there are like obviously pictures are quite, quite limited with this yeah. kind of thing they're quite secretive about it and once you've got through the retractable drawbridge you've got the gold no, you, there's another door, isn't there? Oh, then there is there's another door, one, one of the last more. doors. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's get... two people standing outside telling you a riddle. And you <laughs> yeah. <need> to... <laughs> but I love the way they, because they have, a, it's not just a ditch, they have a mechanism for filling that ditch with water. Yeah. So the entire vault is under, obviously under the city surface, mm. but it's under, there's a subterranean canal mm. which flows along beneath the city and then the vault is beneath that. And so if they need to flood it at any point, they just divert a bit of the subterranean canal which will then slosh down wow. into the drawbridge area and then completely flood that so that yeah. there's no way of right. getting in or out. Unless you're a fish. Unless you're a fish. Unless you're a uh, fish. A trained... <laughs> trained fish. A goldfish. Yeah. Oh, oh very yeah. nice. Yeah. Got to watch out for them. Is it possible that this is just all made up? It's just in someone's... <laughs> Back garden, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a tiny, like like a hotel safe, you know, yeah. with just four punched numbers in. <laughs> like, have they just created a myth so that we think, whoa, it's like Area 51? Those you know, are impossible, the hotel safes I find to get into. I have a curious knack of like locking myself out before I've put any of my stuff in <laughs> the safe. I have to call someone at reception. It's a it's whole thing. Um, what, do you, what kind of, do you put your stuff in the hotel safe? You paranoid android? Yeah, of course I do. Do you? Passport, money belt. Um, Travellers' checks Fanny pack uh, Fanny pack You're only talking about those locks Can I just As a mathematician Raise a bugbear about terminology So you know these oh, yeah. locks Bicycle locks um, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you call them? The I one call it combination lock. Yeah Combination lock. Yeah, yeah. So if, if Imagine the combination was 1984 Okay Like Ooh. the Orwell book My birth year Oh, or yes, Orwell's book. <laughs> <laughs> but a I dystopian gave, year in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> but imagine you put one nine four eight. Would it unlock it? Oh, Terry Pratchett's birthday. Oh, no. oh my god! Why would it not unlock it? I just like a maths lesson here. Why would it's, it not? Because, because it's in the wrong order. Yeah, correct. Mathematically, one nine eight four and one nine four eight are the same combination because combination is just mm. a set of numbers or letters in any order. Oh, the word wow. when they're in the precise order in the precise numbers, it's a permutation. So actually, it should be called a bloody permutation lock. It's bugged me for years. Wow. Well, co- I'm so glad gr- you've had a chance to air yeah. it. And now we'll all call them permutation yeah. locks. I, that, I mean, that is because um, James calls a single panini a panino. And he is going to be absolutely thrilled to hear yes. that, with, that it's a permutation lock. This is great. I, I really want to set James up in some way, like expose him to a combination lock, get him to refer to it as a combination lock. Okay, one of us next week picks a combination lock. Fact, yes. Ah, don't and then take him down right at the top. Sorry, Bobby. That's Sorry. So good. That's so good. That's great. Um, this uh, bank vault door, the armoured door in the Madrid vault, yes. there's one extra thing about it, which is that it's constantly covered with a thin layer of Vaseline. Yeah. Just in case you got a bit just excited. <laughs> just in case, case that talking vault? <laughs> Sexy just talking case vault. Dan turns up <laughs> with his robbery tools in one hand. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get the gold? Actually, I got a bit distracted. <laughs> <laughs> but it stops it rusting because it's made of steel, but not mm. stainless steel. And so it constantly has to be very slightly protected yeah. from, uh, from rusting. So and someone's I- job is to apply Vaseline there God. must be like a, a basically a vault goblin who has <laughs> a, huge, a huge tub of Vaseline just <laughs> <laughs> left down there all the time every day <laughs> smooth as hands on her <laughs> welcome <laughs> remove the fluff then apply the Vaseline yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fluff on the door very bad <laughs> 
I couldn't find out why they're not stainless steel. It says everywhere they've got oh, steel, I, but it's not stainless, I, so you need Vaseline. Did they just cock it up at first? Maybe Did it's they... old. It's an old door pre uh, the stainless mm. steel process. I mean, lots of bank vault doors are very elderly because, you know, you make them once. Yeah. Elderly. Or, I don't know. is it all bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> With the drawbridges <laughs> and the fucking ditches. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Didn't know this before. Gold bars get ultrasound done on them, like mm. pregnant women. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, they probe it uh, and they, they measure the reflections from, from the bottom or from within it. And that's because in the early 2000s, there was a panic that gold bars might have been uh, adulterated with tungsten. Because mm. oh. tungsten has a very similar density, really similar density. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but sound travels at different speeds between uh, through tungsten or through Got gold. Right. So mm. if you had gold bars which had been adulterated, right. you'd know. Yeah. Uh, so if when you think of gold vaults, what obviously Bank of England, any other famous place you can think of? Fort Knox. Fort, that's mm. the one. Fort Knox. Yeah. So I think yeah, Goldfinger, 1964 was probably yeah. what gave it its prominence. Um, people think it has up to half of the American gold reserves. Wait, sorry, was that the that was the Bond plotline yes. for that movie? Yes, yeah. Knox. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so in um, so obviously conspiracy theorists again like, oh, there's no Fort Knox. There's nothing inside there. There's just like Vaseline and fluff. Um, <laughs> but so presidents were actually denied access to Fort Knox, apart from one president. Do you know which one? Like, um, the first half of the twentieth century. Uh, Often known by three initials. Okay. Oh, FDR. Uh, 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 no, LBJ. LBJ. L- F- FDR. Yeah, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In 1943, he's the only U.S. president to have visited Fort Knox. Really? Uh, because he was concerned that it wasn't secure enough to be protected from foreign invasion if the worst happened in wow. World War Two. So he oh, is really? the only president that we know has visited it. Are they allowed to keep presidents out? I thought the president could basically go where. Yeah, wherever they, he they're not given access to it, but yeah, he's. Wow. Like, I think maybe if they like said Barack Obama or Trump, <laughs> I want to see Fort Knox, probably. But he's the only one that we know. That's yeah. amazing. Um, but what's even more fascinating is in World War Two, they were worried about bombs falling in Washington D.C. So actually, they moved things like the originals of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence to Fort Knox. But even like Winston Churchill got on the act. So our Magna Carta was moved in nineteen. So the International Magna Carta is like the UK version of the Bill of Rights, 1215, they moved that to Fort Knox. Did they? Because I know we moved our gold to Canada, which I hadn't realised, which seems like a huge undertaking in the Second World War. But we sent send it to Canada, and so the Bank of England vault became a canteen in the Second World War. I, I've been um, to the Bank of England canteen. Have you? Have you? Cool. It's, Hang on, so is that... It's not still... The vault is the vault has been turned back into a vault. It's is not that back into a, a vault now? So have you been to the oh, vault the actual that canteen. was a canteen? <laughs> 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 I just went to the actual canteen. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> You've had a sandwich at, at your local branch. Very good, Lloyds. Why have you brought all this Vaseline? <laughs> um, the Bank of England vault key is three feet long. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. That is it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's real old school. That's and is dragon it, and moat style stuff. But is it mainly like? Is it like a like shaft. a javelin stick with one thing at the end, or is it all the way down? Does it's it not. It's not notched all the way along. Yeah, it's not oh. notched all the way along. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be really good. That's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's pretty remarkable, by the way, that the Bank of England, which is in central London, Bank Station is Mm -hmm. uh, right next to it if you get on the underground Mm -hmm. line. In fact, the actual tunnel itself has to take a bend. Next time you're on the the underground, you'll notice that there's a turn, and that's because they're going around the vault. It's because they're they're literally going around the vault. And inside this vault is 400,000 bars of gold. So that's 
worth over 200 billion just sitting something like a half hour's walk from where we are right now. 200 billion dollars. Waiting in half an hour, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I got some Vaseline. <laughs> it is, it's amazing, yeah. And there, there are really strict rules about how much gold you can keep, uh, how many layers of gold you can keep in the Bank of England vaults. And this is a big difference between London and New York. So London is mostly on clay. So you're not allowed on most levels to stack the gold higher than four or six uh, oh. pallets because, you, you, you know, it, it will just start sinking into the ground. And that yeah. is a problem. So whereas New York is on granite and you can store gold oh. as high as you like in there, it, w- it will not collapse. Yeah. Oh. And yeah. I, think north, I think north of the river in London, generally it's the surface is stronger. So if Bank of England oh, was south of the river, it would, be, it would sink even further. Yeah, you're so right because that's what caused, that's why we could build the underground yes. at a certain level. Is that why there are no underground stops south of the river? That's basically. One of the, yeah, that's one of the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah, ground's too soft. Yeah. Um, I, just uh, outside of gold, but still with vaults, oh, I yeah. was looking into sort of precious items that have been kept in the vaults of our world. And it's stuff that is kind of seen as the precious secrets of our world. So, for example, the formula for Coca-Cola, supposedly, <laughs> kept in a bank vault. Equals MC Square. <laughs> well, not equals MC Square, but because well, Einstein's eyeballs are in a, in a safe deposit box in New York. Oh. Do you remember after he died, there was a surgeon who took his brain away and took his eyes and took... And so the yeah, eyeballs have still not... It was just his brain. No, his eyeballs are sitting in a vault uh, what? or a safe deposit. You know, they must be preserved. Like they can't just be loose in a box. I think they're probably in from aldehyde. You know, sitting in a in a little beaker. Uh, I imagine. I didn't know. Was that because they had to get the brain out the eye sockets? You think, think they had to remove the doors first? I think once you're just collecting bits of him, you might as well grab him while you're there, right? It's <laughs> you know, that's so creepy. Yeah, it is creepy. Dr. Pepper, the formula for Dr. Pepper, that's sitting in a vault somewhere. The 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 secret ingredients of how you make WD-40 are sitting in a vault. And they were moved once, which was on the product's 50th birthday. The guy who took it was the CEO, Gary Ridge, who rode on a horse through Times Square while wearing a suit of armor and holding the secret ingredients to no. WD-40. Yeah. Before you reach the drawbridge, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's incredible. But it, was, it wouldn't have been possible to rob him actually on that occasion because he'd been so thoroughly lubricated yeah. in the <laughs> armour that robbers would just slide off. <laughs> okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy at Andrew Hunter M Bobby at Bobby underscore Seagull and Anna you can email podcast at qi.com yep or you can go to our group account which is at no such thing or our website no such thing as a fish.com check out all of our previous episodes they'll be up there also links to the final dates of our nerd immunity tour we're going to be doing them in September come and see us live it's lots of fun uh, but if you can't we'll be back here with another episode next week and we'll see you then goodbye <laughs>